The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, good to be with you. Good evening. Uh, if you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Uh, grab a Bible, go ahead and get there to James chapter 5, what Lauren just read for us. While you're getting there, uh, we had a great surf Saturday yesterday, uh, getting to hang out with two of our partner organizations in the city. So we had folks serving with both the Harvest Center and uh, Charlotte Rescue Mission, two organizations kind of on the front lines of serving uh, different folks in different stages of homelessness or recovery or different aspects aspects of their lives like that. And so love getting to partner with them. Uh, one of my explicit goals as a pastor for this year for our church is that a hundred percent of our members would do one, at least one of our serving opportunities. And so if you were not able to be there on Saturday, that's okay. We got another one coming up on April 9th. So you can go ahead and look forward to that. We'll get more information actually this week out to you where you can sign up uh, and look forward to that information as well. But trying to continue to, to mobilize us in our city to care for those in need. Uh, James chapter 5. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into God's Word together. Three weeks left in James. Really excited to, to finish strong. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. This news that can be so easily forgotten, that we can be so quick to move past, that we can be uh, so eager to move on from. And yet in your word, you tell us that it is the very source of our life with you. The reality of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. And so I, I pray as we consider James chapter 5, as we consider your word, God, your true, authoritative, timeless revelation of yourself to your people, God, that you would open our hearts. We would invite the presence of your spirit, which is already with us, who is already moving in our midst. And you would sanctify us, you would grow us, you would mature us. God, as we consider such an intimate topic like our wealth and our finances and our wallets, God, would you break down the barriers of our hearts? The barriers of our hearts against church, the barriers of our hearts against authority, the barriers of our hearts against greed, the things that, that want to just call for our souls. God, would you help us turn our finances and our wealth, but most importantly, our heart towards our finances and our wealth over to you. And you promise in your word that where it's taught, where it's read, where it's preached, where it's proclaimed, that it does not return void but in your faithfulness, you cause it to bear much fruit. 
So would you bear fruit in our lives? Lord, we love you. We need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 5, if you couldn't tell from the scripture that Lauren just read for us, we are talking about money. And I've been around church long enough since before I was born that I know that whenever we find out that we're talking about money, that some of us are like, crap, should not have shown up to church today. Others of us just start to get a little bit uncomfortable, myself included, as the one who has to preach. And I think there's a few reasons why this idea of money makes us so nervous when we're in a setting like this. I think the first reason is that we can all, off the top of our heads, probably give examples of ways that passages about money have been used or misused in all types of ways within the church. The second reason is I think finances, maybe more than anything else in our society, is still kind of one of those taboo topics that you just don't really talk about, right? So even in our age of authenticity and vulnerability, and it's okay to be weak and be yourself, it's still like we don't really talk about that. I remember growing up, my parents instilled in me the two questions you never ask someone is how much do you weigh and how much do you make? Those are the two off-limit questions. The third reason why I think it makes us feel uncomfortable is that often when we talk about money in a setting like the church is that it can make those who have walked through poverty or are currently experiencing poverty or will experience, experience poverty feel like, hey, I don't belong. And often why that is is because a lot of the passages in Scripture have to address riches. And we're going to talk about that more in a second and why the Bible often addresses money. It addresses wealth and riches and those who have a lot. But it can kind of give this sense either overtly or subvertly that if you don't have a lot of money or if you're struggling to get by or make ends meet, then you just kind of don't belong. And so if that's you, if that's your story, if that's where you're at even right now, I hope that you won't hear this sermon where we talk about riches because James talks about riches as an indictment or a message that you don't belong as a part of this church. Just like if we came to a passage of scripture that addressed marriage and you were single, I would never want you to feel like I don't belong here because this particular sermon and this particular passage addresses a life stage or an area of my life where I just don't, I just don't resonate with that. And so if you are in that stage, please, I'd never want you to feel like you do not belong here. If you're struggling to make ends meet, if you're struggling to pay your bills, please come talk to me. We would love to come alongside of you and help you and love you and serve you as a church. But today, James 5 talks about riches. And so we need to talk about riches. We need to talk about wealth. We need to talk about what do we do and what does our faith do with our riches. And so it makes us uncomfortable, but I love that we have to deal with it. And here's two reasons why. The first is that our typical practice as a church is to pick a book of the Bible and to preach through it. So right now we're going through James. We have three weeks left. And so with that practice, it makes us address really hard topics that oftentimes we wouldn't want to talk about if unless the Bible makes us talk about it. But the second reason why I'm excited is because Jesus talks a lot about money. Over 25% of his parables, his teaching stories have to do with our wealth. And what you notice when you look at the teachings of Jesus is that often in what he's teaching about wealth, he is much less concerned about the physical things we do with our cash and much more concerned about what that says about our hearts. Jesus, in almost every single one of his teachings, is pushing into our money because he wants to ultimately push into our loves, our worship, our souls. So today I want to address our wallets, but more than anything, I want to address what our wallets say about our hearts. I want to address what our faith, what our professed living faith in Jesus means for our money. And here's what we're going to see in James 5. Here's the big kind of thesis. Dead faith is selfish, but living faith stewards money well. Dead faith is selfish, but living faith stewards money well. 
Let's get into it. James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So James is going to turn his attention from these kind of boastful, arrogant poor that he was addressing at the end of chapter four to this new group that he calls the rich. Now I want to pause here before we keep going with his arguments and explanations to make sure we're all on the same page about the Bible and riches. The Bible never says that it is a sin to be rich. The Bible never says that it's against the way of Jesus to be rich. Being wealthy is not a sin according to the standards of God in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.10, here's what it says. We think often and misquote it as that money is the root of all evil. But look at what it says. Not money is the root of all evil, but what? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not the problem. Money is actually a morally neutral thing. Money is not explicitly good or explicitly evil. Money is neutral. In fact, the Bible would give examples of people who both had a lot of money or didn't have a lot of money who were either godly or ungodly. So the Bible gives examples, for instance, of the godly poor. So you think about Ruth, who we talked about a ton earlier this year, right? Who had nothing to her name and yet followed and was faithful to God. The Bible also gives a category for the godly rich, Abraham was extremely wealthy, had a ton of cattle and land and servants. I think about Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman who helped fund a lot of the early church planting movement in Acts. The Bible also gives the category for ungodly rich. Think about Pharaoh or Herod or some of these leaders of nations that were against God's people. The Bible also gives a category for ungodly poor. The Proverbs often call them the sluggard or the lazy, the one who doesn't want to work to eat. So it's not a sin to be rich, but you also have to understand while it's not a sin, it is dangerous. While it's not a sin to have a lot of wealth, it is dangerous. One of the continual teachings of the scriptures is that wealth is dangerous to our discipleship to Jesus. And here's why because money wants your heart. Money wants your heart. Money, maybe more than any other neutral thing on this earth, promises and calls after your allegiance promises, things that only God promises and wants allegiance that only God calls for. So money tempts the worship and affection and devotion of our hearts. So much so that in fact, in the ancient world, Christians would refer to riches and wealth with the word mammon. And mammon comes from the Greek word mammonos, and they would use this word mammon to talk about the power behind wealth, greed, money, or material possessions. And so often what they would do in the early church is they would encourage each other, hey, watch out for mammon. Watch out for this power that's behind money that is calling for your affection and your devotion and your allegiance. They would warn each other, hey, this God, mammon, it wants your heart. It's promising all of these things to you. It offers you peace. It offers you joy. It offers you comfort and control and power. And it's so tempting. That temptation is true for us today, 2,000 some odd years later. Money can be so tempting, promising to us, I can give you joy. I can give you peace. I can give you hope. I can give you meaning. I can give you security. We can be tempted to believe that money can do all of the things that God offers, can satisfy our pains, that money can comfort our anxieties, that it can ease our worries, that money can tend our wounds. And so we view it, we seek it, we earn it, and we use it like it's the all-promising God. Money, what can you 
give me. And that's exactly what's happened here with this group that James calls the rich in James chapter 5. They've been looking for money, for mammon, and to offer them what their soul craves. They've believed the lies, and so they've started worshiping money instead of worshiping God. And so James wants to warn them. Specifically, he warns them about three different areas, three ways that they've put false hope or, or believed the false promises of money. And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time tonight. These kind of three false promises that this group he calls the rich and us, as we see ourselves in them, believe in money. Let's look at the first one, verse 2. He says to them, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here's false promise of money number one, security. The first way, the first false promise, the first false hope they were believing that money was going to give them is security. James says to them, woe to you rich. Get ready to weep and to wail because you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, this is not an indictment on saving for retirement, having a 401k, Roth IRA, whatever. This is not an indictment on putting away an emergency fund. What James is after here comes uh, clearly to us in this phrase, laid up treasure. And laid up treasure is used in several places in the scripture, and it has to do with the self-protection of hoarding. So when you see this phrase, laid up treasure in the New Testament, it's this idea of I'm going to accumulate as much wealth as possible, even at the expense of generously and sacrificially loving those around me in need. So it's this, I need more, I want more, I need to have as much as possible because the more I get, the more secure and comfortable I feel. Jesus talks about this idea in Luke chapter 12. He tells the story of a man who looks over his crops, look out at, looks out at his wealth, and this is what he says. Verse 18, He's got, I got so much. I don't know what to do with all this stuff I have. And he says this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. James says that's the posture when we think money can offer us security. Soul, you have ample goods. Eat, drink, relax, be merry. Here's the false lie of money. Aren't you anxious? Like, didn't you listen to the sermon last week? Didn't you hear when Tim said over and over again, like, you don't know tomorrow, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you're a mist, you're a vapor, you're dust, you don't, you can't control it. Didn't you listen to that? Doesn't that make you nervous? Doesn't that make you uncomfortable? That you, you want to know what tomorrow brings, right? Like, you want to have security, you want to have control, you want to be able to say, everything's going to be okay. Enter money. I can give you that. Look at your bank account. Look at that number. See how it's not in the red? You're good. You'll be okay tomorrow. You'll be all right. Are you feeling a little anxious in your soul? Are you feeling a little uncomfortable with what's going on? Just get on the app real quick. You see, the stocks are going all right. The markets are going to be okay. You'll be all right. That's the stuff of peace, the false offer of peace. And so what do we do? We feed the monster. Yeah, you're right. I am uncomfortable. I am anxious. I do feel uncertain. I do feel like out of control. Good. I have money. I'll be okay. He says, that's the false God. And this is not, uh, I'm putting away some money for a rainy day type of wisdom. Uh, this is also not like, I can't buy groceries. I don't know what to do. I'm genuinely concerned. What James is after in this hoarding for security is this idea of, hey, everything in my life is crumbling, but I'm going to be okay if that number in my bank account is okay. 
It's security, it's control, it's comfort. And here's the problem, James says, riches rot and people die. That's his problem, right? Verse two, this is what he says. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your money is not going to last. Riches don't last. What a fleeting and hopeless thing to put our security in. Look, you can look at the stock market all you want to. And you can try to project like, okay, generally it kind of goes like this. But in my lifetime alone, we've lived through five economic recessions. 1991, 2000, 2008, 2012, and 2020. Five in 30 years. Right now, while you're at church, you have no idea if your HVAC unit at home has busted or not. And you're going to get home and be like, well, there goes $10,000. And I know because we replaced ours last summer. You don't know if you're going to get in the parking lot and go to turn on your car and it's not going to start. And so you're going to get it towed to the dealer. Guess what? There's $4,000. While we were here over the past 15 minutes, gas has already gone up 50 more cents a gallon. (laughs) That joke's not going to make sense in two years on the recording. Money is so fleeting. Okay, you're like, okay, sure, yeah, but maybe I'm going to be the one in 10 that has super financial security until I die. That's great, James says, and then you're going to die. And so even if money promises you security until death, it has no eternal security to offer you. That's what Jesus says to the man in Luke 12, right? This man that's like, I'm going to get more relaxed soul. Look at what God says. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. That very thing you're saying, hey, relax, relax, soul. Take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. God's like, your soul is going to be required of you tonight. You can't control the future and you can't control when you're going to die. And here's the deal. When you die, your material belongings, they don't go with you. And here's what happens. Everything that you put so much stock in and so much hope in will one day when you pass away, become the stuff in your house that your family and friends argue over, divvy up, and then sell or donate the rest. Welcome to church. James says, it's foolish. Don't put your security in money. It's so fleeting. And even if it's not fleeting for this life, it is fleeting for the life to come. It cannot give you eternal security. It cannot give you the hope you want. Let's look at number two, verse four. He continues, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. False promise number one, or false promise number two, rather, is power. False promise number two of money, mammon, the false god, is is power. In that time period, owning land was a status symbol. With more land and more wealth came more status. It gave you power and sway and ownership in the society. You were important if you had a lot of land, because if you had a lot of land, you had a lot of wealth. So James here specifically rebukes these folks who would corruptly use their power and wealth not to elevate or bless those who don't, but rather to keep their foot on them and say, no, I'm gaining more, I'm getting more status, I'm getting more identity. So they've hired some workers. They said, hey, come mow our fields. We'll pay you 30 bucks. They come, they mow the fields. They're like, just kidding, we're going to give you 15. James says, this is off. This is not okay. First you were evil in how you hoarded your money. Now you're evil in how you make your money. Because here's the lies of money when it comes to power. Do you feel overlooked and unimportant? Do you feel like nobody cares about you? Do you feel like you just keep getting stepped on? Do you feel like you keep getting overlooked? Do you feel like you keep doing good work and you keep getting passed over? Do you feel like people scoff at you, snub their nose at you, look down at you? Do you feel powerless? Money says, hey, I've got a solution for that. It's the almighty dollar. Money is power, so more money equals more power. This will give you meaning, it will give you influence, it'll give you success, it'll help you win. And sure, some folks might get hurt. You might have to rip some folks off. You might have to take advantage of a person here or there, but didn't they take advantage of you? 
Didn't they get the best of you? Isn't it a dog-eat-dog world? Isn't it just kind of how it goes? Some people are going to get left out, but you're going to get ahead and you're going to have the power that you want. It's not that big of a deal. It's a false promise. And James says, here's the problem. The heart of God is for the powerless. James says, money is offering you power, but here's what you don't understand. The heart of God is for the powerless. That's why he says in, in that verse, he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God's heart is never with the oppressor. It's always with the oppressed. Their cries reach the ears of God. His eyes are on the lowly. His mercy and kindness is on those who are abused and oppressed. So maybe money can give you a little bit of temporary earthly power, but one, it's fleeting. And two, God's always on team powerless, not team powerful. It's the good news of the gospel. God is always on team powerless. His heart is always with those who are being hurt or mistreated. He hears the cries, not of the person taking advantage, but of the one being taken advantage of. So here's what you need to understand when it comes to money and how we treat others and how we make it. You have two options. You either love money and use people, or you use money to love people. You hear that? You either love money and use people, or you use money to love people. If I could just pastor you for a second, because I know a lot of who's in our congregation. Uh, there are a number of us who work in sales or some type of commission type work or like self-employed, but we get paid based on what we produce type work. I think verse four is a special temptation for you. And so I've been praying for you this week, I, this past couple of weeks as I've been studying for this sermon, I would just encourage you, that's a really hard place to be as a Christian and you're pressing in and you're doing good work. I would encourage you this week, uh, spend more time with the spirit and verse four. Spend more time asking the Lord to guard your heart against uh, manipulating that person so you get the contract, kind of fudging numbers a little bit so people look better at what you're doing. They want to give you the business. You can make that sale. I would just encourage you, ask the Lord in a unique way this week, Lord, will you press verse four into my heart of James 5? Would you help me be a good entrepreneur to the glory of God? Would you help me be a good salesperson to the glory of God? Would you help me not sell my soul for the number? Not to use people to get more money, but to use money to love more people. Would you help me, Lord, do my work with faithfulness? Let me give you the last one, verse 5. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. The false promise, false hope of money, number three, is comfort. Comfort. James says you have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. The word James uses for self-indulgence is used in the New Testament a couple times to basically mean the opposite of fasting. So if fasting is we say no to what our hearts want. Self-indulgence is we only say yes to what our hearts want. And James says, this is what you're doing with money. You're just always saying yes to whatever your heart wants you to throw the money at. You're just always going for it. Yes, yes, yes. Buy more, spend more. What do I want? What do I need? You're like, I have no idea about that hoarding stuff. I just spend it. Immediately. It's like, I have no idea about putting it away. I just put it towards things. I buy more stuff. Here's the false lie of the false God of mammon and money when it comes to this. Are you sad? Like, do you feel like something in your life is missing? Do you feel like, man, this is just not it, right? Like, this is life? This is, no. Hmm. This is harder than I thought. Hmm. Nope. I feel like I should have more joy. I feel like I should have more excitement. I feel like I should have more adventure. I feel like everybody else is enjoying life, but not me. And money says, hey, have you heard of Amazon Prime? You can get joy here in the next four hours. That's a joke, but that's the promise of money, right? Hey, do you feel sad? Have you thought about new shoes? Hey, do you feel hopeless? 
Have you thought about a new house? Hey, do you feel like your life's just not how you want it? Have you thought about a new car? Have you thought about a vacation? What you need is a vacation. Have you thought about a vacation? Listen, I'm for good cars. I'm for houses. I'm for vacations and trips and all those kind of things. It's the false lie that says, hey, you know where your joy is actually found? In this thing, in this stuff, in this trip. Not in Jesus, in more. And here's the problem that James says they're going to run into, is that you'll never have enough. If money is where you look to for joy, you're never going to have enough. If money is where you look to for peace and life and happiness and fulfillment and contentment, I have bad news for you, and the Bible has bad news for you, and our society has bad news for you. You're never going to be content. There's a whole industry built on making sure you're never going to be content. Solomon, who is an Old Testament king of the Israelites, he's a king that had more money than, he, than you could ever fathom, than I could ever fathom, and he writes this book called Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, and it's kind of like his wisdom as an old man who has lived all of this bountiful life. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. In case you don't believe the Bible, maybe you'll believe Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey says... I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that's not the answer. Jim Carrey's net worth is over $30 million. I wish everyone could get all of the money they want so they could see it is meaningless. Does not give the hope that it promises. Maybe this isn't you, maybe it's just me, but I continually shock myself with my inability to be content. (laughs) So I remember this story in particular uh, shows me the the state of my sin and my heart. So Lindsay and I uh, were getting ready to move up here a couple of years ago. And it was the time of like severe COVID real estate restrictions in North Carolina. And so you couldn't look at a house, like tour, walk through a house until you had money down on the house. That's how strict it was back in May of 2020. And so we uh, found a house. We did watch like a little walkthrough video online. And we're like, that looks like a good house. Let's go for it. And we put money down. And so finally we got to come up and tour it after we had put money down. And it was like walking through Disney World for us. Like we were so excited. We were walking through like, that's awesome. And that's cool. And this is great. And we were just so excited. We were like, yes, I think we made a good decision. This is great. And then we got to the kitchen. We walked in the kitchen. Some of you are like, I've been to your kitchen. It's not that cool. We walked to the kitchen, and we turned the corner, and I saw a refrigerator, and that refrigerator had an ice maker. I have a deep obsession with chewing ice. It's bad. It's like bad, bad. I'm not working on it. I don't care. <laughs> and I saw this refrigerator, and I kid you not, I think I gasped. Like, I was legitimately like, <gasps> It has an ice maker. And we were freaking out. And our real estate agent, who didn't know us at all, was like, these people are strange. Like, this is not, like, no, like, fireplace, awesome. It's like, ice maker on the fridge. This is great. And honestly, we loved everything about the house. It was awesome. Felt like it was going to meet everything we needed. We were like, yes, there's no way we will never be content and happy, or not content and happy with this house, until, like, two weeks after we moved in. (laughs) Right? And we're sitting there in the basement and we're like, been there for two weeks and we're like, ah, that's wrong. And we can change that and we could maybe shift that. Is this enough space? Like, remember, I know we thought it was enough space, but like we could do an addition, right? Have you thought about an addition? And it shocked me how quickly my heart went from, yes, this is the best ever. I have no idea how I could ever not like this house and be so content to two weeks later being like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm the sinner. Maybe I'm the one who needs Jesus. But I think all of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, know how quickly we, di- we get discontent with the very thing we thought was going to bring us the contentment and joy two weeks ago. It is shocking how that number is never enough on the second look. 
It's shocking how much we go, yes, this is what I need. Thank you, Lord. And then a week later, it's like, "Mm, maybe a little more. I heard a a guy say one time when he talks about people and why they always reach their budget limits, why they always spend, uh, seems like more than they make. And he says, it's shocking about our ability to suddenly push our standard of living to what we make. I think that's just true with contentment. I think it's true that we, yeah, it's shocking how much our hearts want to go. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need more. Maybe I need more. Maybe I need more because it's not about the thing. It's always about the heart. It's not about the thing we're discontent with. It's always about our hearts because our hearts are looking for it to find joy and hope and peace. So James would tell them, we want money to be God and give us security. But here's the bad news, which is rotten people die. We want money to be God and give us power, but God's heart is for the powerless. We want money to be God and give us comfort. We'll never have enough. But here's the deal, church. The problem is not simply that money cannot give everything it promises. The problem is not just that money would say, go for this, you can have this, you can have this, but yet riches rot, people die, and we'll never have enough. This is the problem. James says, the very last verse of this passage, to those who worship money, verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. What's he talking about there? The, The righteous person that does not resist condemnation and murder. He's talking about King Jesus, right? He's talking about the one true God. And so James tells them, listen, you've looked to money for your security and for your power and for your comfort. And in so doing, you have condemned and murdered the true and righteous holy King Jesus. And so it's not simply that money can't be God because it doesn't work. Money cannot be God because God is God and God does not share the throne. It's not just like, yeah, this can't be God. I know money can't be God because it rots and it doesn't last. It doesn't suffice. No, it can't be God because God is God. And God is on the throne, and God will not share the throne of our hearts. Which is why Jesus warns us, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. You cannot split your heart. You cannot say, yeah, I want my Jesus cake, and I want to eat it too with the money. You can't do that can't worship both. Either money can be your God or God can be your God. And here's what happens when we worship money instead of God. We look at God, we look at Jesus and we say, okay, I see you, but like, I also want this stuff too. Like, okay, I get it. I know the gospel. I know you're for me. I know you rule over all things. I know you're worthy of my worship. I know you're glorious, but like, I also want money. And so I'm going to worship money instead. I'm going to turn away from God. I'm going to worship money instead, but we're like Christian about it. So we don't say that we just do it in our lived lives. We don't actually say like, no, I'm just going to worship money. We just live as if money is the ultimate God instead of God himself. And what James says is when you do that, you are rejecting Jesus. And it is your rejection of Jesus in your worship of money that put Jesus on the cross. So money and our love of it and our worship of it is not a game. It's a sin that Jesus died for that takes him to the cross. Jesus dies for, among other sins, our money idolatry our worship of mammon, our sin of loving money. And so James can boldly say, our unrighteous worship of money condemned and murdered the righteous one. Yet here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus does not resist. He doesn't resist. He goes willingly and lovingly and joyfully and sacrificially to the cross on our behalf. And he dies the death that us and our worship and love of money deserve. And he does not stay dead. He rises from the grave three days later, risen and ruling and reigning over all. And everything that money lies and says it can give us is on offer to us in the good news of the gospel. 
Everything that we look to money to give us is what Jesus offers in the gospel. And so we look at money and say, money, can you give me security? And money's like, I'm going to try. And it doesn't. And God says, yes, but in the gospel, I offer you true security. I offer you true hope and true peace, not just now, not just in the life that's now, but in the life to come, true eternal security, because your soul is caught up in Christ Jesus. You have a future resurrection with him. Money offers us power, and you're like, that sounds good. I'm overlooked. I want somebody to notice me and to look at me and to give me identity and give me purpose and give me meaning. Can you do that money? And money's like, I'm going to try, and it doesn't, and it fails. And Jesus says, hey, in the good news of the gospel, I give you identity. I claim over you, son or daughter of God. I speak over you a welcome, not based on how much money you have, not based on what you do, not based on how good looking you are, not based on how smart you are or your pedigree or your family. I call you my own through the blood of Jesus. We look at money. We say, can you offer me comfort? I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm sad. I don't like my life. Can you offer me any lasting comfort? And money says, yes, I can buy more stuff. And then you buy more stuff and it doesn't work. And Jesus says, hey, in the good news of the gospel, I invite all who are weary to come to me and rest, to lay down your burdens, to lay down your fears, to lay down your worry and find joy, relief, hope, and rest. The one true God offers to us in the good news of the gospel everything we think money's going to give us, and it never does. That's the good news of Christ. And so what happens is when we put our living faith, hope, trust in Jesus, it changes then from the inside out how we deal with our money. So here's how this works its way out from our hearts into our wallets. When money is God, we're selfish, but when God is God, we're stewards. When money is God, we're selfish, but when God is God, we're stewards. I've got Jesus. I don't need money to be God and bring me security and comfort and power. God is God. He brings me true security. He brings me true comfort. I don't have to hoard in self-protection. I don't have to buy more stuff to try to feel comfortable and okay and at peace. I don't have to seek a meaning and identity and power through money. God has given me everything I need in Christ Jesus. And so my money is not about me. It's a gift that I can now steward as a tool for the, gl the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. Our heart, when our hearts change, our wallets begin to change. And so we don't have to hoard for security. We have to say, hey, I have all eternal security in Jesus, and so I can give. I can give sacrificially, and I can give generously. We don't have to oppress or to, to push down on those who are powerless. God gives us a new identity, new meaning, where we are powerless, and he makes us his own in the gospel. And so we're freed up to use our money not to hoard or make ourselves powerful, but to give it away in service and love to those who are powerless. Those around us in need, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. We don't have to buy more stuff to get more comfort. Jesus offers us eternal peace and joy. And so we can actually be freed up to use our wallets to sacrifice our joy for the joy of others because we have all our joy in Christ. So we're freed up to say, hey, that person in my group in need, I can give sacrificially. I can be generous to step in for their need. Hey, that organization that's doing good work in our city, that's trying to love and serve the marginalized, like Charlotte Rescue and the Harvest Center, I can give and give generously because I'm trying to serve the powerless, not make myself more powerful. Hey, instead of hoarding and, and trying to get more security for my finances, I can give so that the gospel goes to the nations or the gospel goes out even in our city. Jesus is after our hearts. It's after our hearts. That's why he's after our wallets. He wants our wallets because he wants our hearts. 
He wants us to trust him, to look to him for everything on offer in the good news of the gospel. That's why, one of the reasons why every time we gather, we stop and we pause and we celebrate communion. And we remember together the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, because it's the gospel that changes us by the power of the spirit. It's the good news that God wants our hearts, that he's trying to change us from the inside out, that he offers to us all eternal security, welcome, identity, joy, peace, comfort, all the things our souls crave and look to for money. And so we're going to take communion. You should have a little uh, cup on your, your seat. You can grab one of those. If you're not a Christian, uh, taking communion is one of the only things we'd ask you not to do uh, because you'd be saying that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is true for you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe in him, to believe that everything your soul is craving for and trying to look to money to give you is actually found in Christ Jesus. And if you want to talk about the gospel, if you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, I'll be down front afterward. We'll also have some prayer team in the back. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, we're going to take communion. It's the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And every time you eat this bread, you remember that I was sacrificed on the cross on your behalf, that I died for your sins. I died for your suffering. I died so that you could be made right with God. So church, take and eat. In the same way he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. And he said, when you drink from this cup, you're announcing, remembering, celebrating the Lord's death until he returns. And so we have a chance right now to remember that it's by the blood of Christ that we are reconciled to God, that we're offered true identity, true comfort, true hope, true peace in him. So church, take and drink. We're going to respond. There's going to be some folks in the back who would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, we're going to stand here in just a second and sing and worship. Let me pray for us as we transition. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for James chapter 5, 1 through 6. God, thank you that it is the authoritative, without error, inspired, a true word of God. That it, it invites us, that you invite us by the power of your spirit to examine our wallets, to examine our hearts. To be honest before you and before ourselves and before one another, Lord, here's what I'm looking for money to give me. I'm looking for it to give me comfort. I want it security. I want power. I want to feel like I matter. I want to feel like I'm known. I want to feel like I'm going to be okay. Lord, and money lies to us and it says, yeah, I can give you all of that. We know it doesn't last. We know it doesn't satisfy. We know it doesn't fulfill its promises. But rather, Lord, we know that you want our hearts that you say, no, you can't worship both God and money, so worship me, and everything your soul craves is found. Forgiveness for our sins, hope for our troubles, peace in our suffering, life forever with God. Lord, I pray that we'll believe you. God, I pray that you will help our unbelief. God, I pray that that for the gnawing of my soul, Lord, would you help me remember that my joy, my hope, my peace is not in one more thing, It's not in a little bit more in the bank account. Then my hope is in you. My joy is in you. My life is in you. God, would you help us to believe you? Would you help us to take you at your word? Thank you for loving us first, God. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we should have, and yet rise again, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we can know you and walk with you. And we never grow cold to the greatest news there ever was and ever will be. 
We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.